Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Wednesday, January 1st, 2014, and this is podcast number 363. What you're going to hear today is a recording of my discussion last night with uh, Robert Kruger and Daniel Rothschild over at Voluntary Virtues. And uh, so check it out, uh, enjoy it. As you're listening to it, think about uh, one other thing as well. I've been talking the last few times that I've uh, had the opportunity, I've been talking about the book Abducting Arnold by Becky Akers. It's a historical thriller. I highly recommend this book. It is by far it's the best historical novel that I've ever read, and it will keep you right on the edge of your seat as you read it. You won't be able to put it down. Um, get over to Amazon. They have it in an electronic form, in e, in e version, and they have, uh, actual paperback versions as well. And it'd be nice if you follow the Bad Quaker link to get over there and, and buy that. And we do appreciate all the folks that are buying things from Amazon through our link. Uh, it, uh, it really helps, you know, pay for the uh, website and keep things, keep things rolling. Okay, so, uh, Without any further, what you're about to hear is uh, my discussion with Robert Kruger and Daniel Rothschild at Voluntary Virtues uh, that happened yesterday evening. Thank you very much. Anyway, Ben Sloan's here. I think we should Yeah, Ben has joined us. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Voluntary Virtues, Ben. Um, Hello. Hi. Uh, if, if people aren't familiar with you, um, you, you do um, provide most of the content on uh, uh, Bad Quaker. Um, of course, you have other people contributing is there as well. Um, you've been doing that for quite some time. Um, one of the uh, first in the uh, modern era of, uh, pr- you know, uh, promoting liberty. Um, well, thank you for joining our show. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, I do apologize that Michael Shanklin is unable to join us. His uh, um, female interest uh, has <laughs> kind of uh, put the foot down and said, uh, we're going to attend something. Um, and uh, so he had to had to go. So he expresses his apologies, and uh, certainly um, we have some uh, of his standard questions that uh, I'm going to throw at you. And then um, we're uh, we're joined by uh, um, Mr. Rothschild here, not from the bad Rothschilds, um, who is going to have his own questions as well. Um, so Michael always likes to ask, um, you know, what brought you? to your theories of liberty? How did it come to you that this system that we have is not right and that uh, we need to look into alternatives besides the the Democrat Party, the Republican Party? What was it that brought you to these concepts? How did you get there? Well, I kind of cheated. I had a really good head start in the sense that uh, my dad was quite the rebel and so was my mom. Uh, They both... uh, uh, they neither uh, bought the standard story that was given to them. You know, they were very skeptical on a lot of things. My dad 
uh, I think I said this last time I was on the show with Michael. Um, my dad would spend his whole life as a, uh, his adult life that is, as an unlicensed private pilot, refused to uh, submit to uh, any licensing process. He figured he could fly, um, just like he could ride a motorcycle without a license for years and years. Uh, so it was a, excuse me, it was a rebellious streak that, and a, and a skeptical streak. I mentioned that uh, my mother uh, was, as a as a very young woman, she was completely convinced uh, of FDR and the New Deal and World War II and and all the the things that came with all of that. But by the time she was, let's say, mid thirties, she began to understand that almost everything that she had been told by the government was a lie. So uh, by the time I came along, I already had this great foundation and two really good parents. And uh, then my experiences with police as a teenager really set in my mind that there was absolutely nothing about what is typically called law that's actually legitimate, that's actually law. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I that was my beginning. I, I was going when I was a teenager in the 70s. I was going door to door with uh, uh, Normal National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and uh, you know, in '88, uh, in 1988, I was back in the political scene in the sense that uh, I was I had to a, to a large degree I had believed the the, uh, the lies of Reagan and Reaganomics and all this kind of thing uh, during the '80s. But by 88, I really, I was a stand-in delegate to the Republican convention, and, uh, and I really saw the level of hypocrisy and the, that it, that it was all just a, a fake game, that none of it was real. It was all just a show. And so in 88, before the election, I ripped up my Republican membership card, sent it back to him, and, uh, got behind Ron Paul. And then I was, disillusioned by that as well. I realized that the libertarians had no chance of ever uh, really making an impact, that politics was not the method. So it was a, you know, it was, it was years in the process. But uh, when my, by the time my oldest daughter was a young adult, I had really, uh, she was a full-blown anarchist. I mean, she was by the time she was sixth, seventh grade, she was printing up anarchist material and distributing it at her school. Uh, so, you know, by the time she was a young adult, she had all the concepts of of, of uh, true anarcho-capitalism. She had them down pat. And so she brought me that extra way. Uh, by the time she was an a, adult, uh, discussions between her and I, she would just refine my thinking, uh, question me, challenge me. On uh, on hard questions that I would have a hard time sticking with the standard libertarian line um, and being consistent. So by you know probably late nineties, she had me convinced. I kind of fell away temporarily in two thousand one when nine eleven happened. I was I was taken in by that uh, very briefly, but then. It didn't take very long for my eyes to open back up and realize that it was another con job. Now, I'm not saying 9-11 didn't happen. I'm saying I'm not getting into that whole argument at all. What I'm saying was clearly there was layers and layers of lies 
to justify the behavior that they were throwing at us. Uh, so, you know, my eyes were reopened again in the early 2000s uh, by, what, 2010, I think. I just felt like I had to do something other than, you know, hide behind uh, fake names and post on different places on the Internet. I had to come out and literally come out of the closet and say, look, this is who I am. This is my real name. This is where I live. And this is, you know, this is what I am. I'm an anarchist. And, uh, you know, it wasn't easy for, for some people to accept. But uh, but there it is. And they can either take it or leave it, you know. Well, then, um, what is it that uh, you got you to choose the bad Quaker um name um i i in quaker terminology i became a convinced friend uh quakers are referred to among themselves as friends and uh i was uh spiritually speaking you know, during the 1980s i uh i really went through some seeking and i really looked at different things religiously and I came to the conclusion that there was as much fraud in religion as there is in politics. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> so um, I had pretty much abandoned what we might call organized religion by about 1990 or so. That's not to say that I was uh, an atheist or, or uh, agnostic or whatever. I just believed that whatever truth was, it wasn't inside of a church building. And it didn't come out of the mouth of a pastor or a preacher or, or a priest or anything like that. And I slowly got acquainted with the with the qu- concepts of Quakerism. And mostly I, I felt really drawn towards it because it's a very individualistic uh, uh, religion. But there are some aspects of being a Quaker that I just could never really accept. Uh, one is the complete passivism. Now, not all Quakers are complete pacifists. But that's kind of a trademark of, of Quakerism. Uh, the other is that Quakers tend to be, to lean towards socialism. And I'm definitely the opposite of that. So, um, and then to, to make the long story even longer, uh, in about 2009, I guess, or 2010, it was before we set up the site, um, I was on a very popular uh, forum, a survival forum, and uh, I had been putting in probably 15, 20 hours a week uh, volunteering to keep that, to get that forum going and, and get it up uh, to be one of the more successful forums out there. And um, that's about the time I decided that I needed to get out, get out from underneath the covering of fake names and, you know, somebody else's website where I was limited to, as to what I could say. Uh, so I ha- we had a contest on that forum. And I said, here's some things about me, and let's figure out a, a, a good website name. And I also mm-hmm. wanted to keep in mind I needed something that would be Google-friendly, you know. Uh, if you, <laughs> There's no use in making a website if nobody can find it. Right. So we kicked around several different uh, possible names, and uh, we had a, a vote, and Bad Quaker won in, in the vote. And I thought, well, you know, I, I still held the, the, the position that if – if we came up with a bad solution to this problem, I wouldn't take that bad solution. But I, I was real comfortable with that idea, the bad Quaker, because I had used that phrase a couple times. I had said that sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter how good of a Quaker you are. Sometimes you have to just roll up your sleeves and kick somebody's butt. 
And I, I, you know, I would say I never said I was a good Quaker. And so phrases <laughs> like that, you know, phrases like that would get kicked around. And uh, so I, I like that. I like the the thought. Yeah, bad Quaker. That's that fits because I'm definitely not a good Quaker. <laughs> so um, Daniel and I uh, were talking previously about the idea of violence, and um, specifically as a result of uh, some uh, discussions that have uh, been, used, you know, where you might have been involved, where. Uh, the idea of uh, the use of self-defense, is it appropriate or not when dealing with um, government officials? Um, in the case of, let's say, a home invasion, do you defend yourself against the police? And um, he, he wanted to maybe bring you know bring some questions to you on that, that uh, regard. Did I express that correctly? Dan? Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, the reason I sort of asked, I remember there was a, um, I think, uh, Christopher... Cantwell, uh, I think, was criticizing you on one of the shows where he was saying that uh, uh, Ben Stone, this is just what he's saying, I'm not saying I, I don't know, that's why I'm going to ask you what your view is, um, but he was saying that Ben Stone says that you shouldn't use violence at all, uh, even you know in self-defense against the state, which is weird because he calls himself bad Quaker, and Quakers are complete pacifists, and it, it would seem like the name bad Quaker means violence is okay in self-defense, and yet it seems like he's saying, um, let yourself be victimized by the state and don't your, defend yourself against the state. Don't ever become a, a, a cop killer if cops are busting down your door and out to take you away from your family and friends just for victimless crimes. So um, I don't know. Maybe, you know, that those I don't know if those were just accusations he was saying or what truth to there that was. But I guess just your comments on that. Sure. Um, well. Are there language limitations here in this particular show that we're on? Hmm? Are there what? <laughs> language limitations. No, oh, say no. whatever you want. Um, it, it would be preferable if we could avoid the uh, the F-bomb and, uh, you know, the really no, big madness. Curse. No one's watching anyway. It's December 31st. Uh, we've, got three, we've got three viewers, damn it. Fuck, 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 fuck. Now I already said it. Go. <laughs> Okay, I'll be I'll be very fairly calm about it. Uh, Chris Cantwell is a liar and a jackass and an idiot. Uh, he he has no idea what my views are on this topic. And when I personally challenged him at Porkfest to uh, to deal with this issue, he almost physically ran from me. He turned and walked as fast as his chubby little legs would carry him, without actually breaking into a gallop. So that's my opinion of Chris Cantwell. Um, I'm perfectly comfortable using, uh, any form of violence, any level of violence, uh, in defense of oneself or one's property. However, hold on one second. Sorry, I had to clear my throat there. Uh, however, as important as it is to maintain the zero aggression principle, it's also important to maintain wisdom. That's something that Chris Cantwell wouldn't know if it squatted on his face and wiggled. But wisdom tells us that if you pull a gun on a SWAT team when they're coming in your house, the odds are about 99 to 1 that you're going to die. Now, if that's your goal, if it's your goal to make a point by killing a SWAT member, then fire away. But remember this. Uh, here's something Chris Cantwell also doesn't have any knowledge of. There are other people involved when in most of these SWAT raids, very few times does it actually happen 
where it's just one guy sitting by himself in a room and the SWAT team comes in. Generally, they come in on families and there's children. Now, when when the individual guarding his own home, though he may have 100% of a right to shoot that cop, in doing so, there's a good likelihood that you also executed your family and you don't have the right to do that. So is it is it okay to kill a cop? Sure. It's okay to kill anybody as far as the zero aggression principles is concerned. It's okay to kill anybody if they're an immediate danger to you. But Chris Cantwell takes it in a whole different direction than that, talking about uh, arming your vehicles, like uh, comparing them to bearcats, uh, calling people pacifists who are clearly not pacifists, uh, talking about killing the mailman, um, things like this. He just goes into, and, it, and at times... The mailman? What kind of aggression is that? Well... That it, seems like murder to me. That's um, what he said, not me. Now, let me let me clarify something else, too. And I said this in a speech at Porkfest. Uh, the government doesn't rightfully own anything. They don't they don't own any property because the government's not a person. Everything that they possess, they possess because they stole from someone. That being the case, they have no property rights. The government has no property rights. So everything the government possesses, according to Lockean principles and libertarian principles, is available for homesteading. That means if I wanted to, I could rightfully, now I'd probably get killed, but I could rightfully go and take possession of, say, the Washington Monument. And I could rightfully say, you know what? I don't like this phallic symbol. I think I'll tear it down. And I could rightfully, under the zero aggression principle and Lockean principles of property rights, I could wrap a chain around that dude and pull it down with a giant tractor if I had one big enough. And then I could do whatever I wanted to with the stones off of it because it doesn't currently belong to anybody. And I could even do that just to make a point, and I would be perfectly rightfully okay in doing that. Now, I would suggest not using explosives for something like this because explosives are too easy for things to get out of control and accidentally hurt somebody. So I'm not I'm not pro-explosives. But if, and I said this at Porkfest, if someone were to tear down a so-called monument like that, something that's uh, supposed to be public property. Um, or let's take it in a different direction. Let's say there's a cop car sitting on side of a, you know, side of a street, and you're walking down the street, and there's nobody around, and there's no threat to you. That cop car doesn't belong to anybody. There's no ownership of that because government can't own anything. So if you decide, you know what, I like that window right there on that cop car. And uh, and you just reach into your pocket and you pull out your little cool little tool that you carry in your little pouch and you just pop the window on that cop car. You have not broke the zero aggression principle. You might get yourself tased, sprayed, shot, beaten, raped, any number of things for doing that. But you have entirely you have the right to do that. But again, we go back to wisdom. Is this the smart way? Is it smart to fight the government by using the methods that the government uses? And I remember the word. It's pragmatism. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, there's, an, there's, a, there's a very good movie um, called Love and Anarchy, and it's, it's an Italian film uh, by Lena Wertmuller, great director. I really recommend it. Uh, about a guy who wants to assassinate Mussolini because Mussolini's goons killed his best friend. And basically, one of the ideas behind the movie is 
is this guy a hero or a fool uh, for attempting what is clearly a, a suicide mission? Um, so I, I guess uh, I want your opinion uh, when it comes to, well, what, what do you think of people like, you know, Adam Kokesh and what he did? On the one hand, you know, it's a sign of civil disobedience. On the other hand, you know, I don't think he's really inspired. Is he inspiring other people to do the same or other people saying, you know, he had a radio show, he was successful, uh, and now he's just sitting in a jail cell. I mean, what good does this do? Um, but if we don't do civil disobedience, then what do we do? Do we just let the state railroad us? Uh, you know, I, I, I guess it's pretty sort of hard. Either uh, way, it seems like we're screwed. I've kind of gotten a lot of heat. Uh, I, did a, I did a series on called Going Beyond Civil Disobedience. And I got a lot of heat from that from a lot of people who got wrapped up in terminology. And uh, I, I made a, a small little phrase, and a lot of people got really wrapped up on that phrase and never looked beyond it to see what the bigger picture of the of the series was about. And I think there was like four or five podcasts, hour-long podcasts in the series of Going Beyond Civil Disobedience. Um, the thing with civil disobedience, and, and this is the terminology that gets people confused, what uh, it's kind of like the word anarchy. If you ask, a, if you randomly ask a hundred people on the street to describe anarchy, you would get a hundred completely different answers, and it's almost guaranteed a hundred of those would be wrong. Uh, civil disobedience has a specific legal meaning. And if you ignore Wikipedia and you actually get a legal dictionary and you look up what civil disobedience is, the definition for civil disobedience says that the person doing the civil disobedience is not objecting to the system and they're not objecting to the government. They're objecting to a specific law or series of laws and they're basically trying to gain attention to those laws to get the government to change those laws. So right. that's yeah. The, well, sorry to interrupt, but sort of like what Martin Luther King Jr. said uh, when he said, um, "A person who um, doesn't follow what he views in his eyes as an unjust law and is willing to take the consequences to uh, spread other p- people about the injustice of the law is in reality showing the highest respect for the law." Exactly, precisely. That that's exactly what I'm talking about. And if you think about the greatest champions of the 20th century. In civil disobedience, we have people like Gandhi, uh, uh, Rosa Parks might come to mind, uh, certainly Martin Luther King Jr., um, maybe, you know, the recently passed uh, Nelson Mandela. These these thoughts come to mind when you think of civil disobedience, but none of those were anarchists. All of those people sought to change the system from within the system. Now, and so that's the goal of true civil disobedience is to ch- use the system to change the system, convince the government to be nice to you, convince the government to get rid of the bad laws and give you good laws. I don't want that. I think any law coming from the government by its very nature is oppression and illegitimate. So I don't want to change. I don't want to get the government to change the government. A lot of that, in a this may seem detached, but it's really on the same point. A lot of very faithful Ron Paul uh, followers will constantly chant in the Fed. But if you're asking the government to end the Fed, you're asking the government to fix the exact problem that the government created. When has that ever worked? If the government ends the Fed, they're going to give you something even worse. Guaranteed. Because that's what well, they, they do. Slavery. Say that again? 
they ended slavery. Did they? Ah! You know, they they were the ones that were no, responsible no, no, for slavery didn't. in the first place. They, you know, they, they did not end slavery. And they put it into their support of slavery. They, that's something that uh, was was done that might have, you know, many people would say that was a, you know, a good reduction in the size of government and the power of government. I mean, come on. I think giving credit to the government for ending slavery is like giving credit to a, a wife beater for no longer beating his wife. You wouldn't give credit to a wife beater for no longer beating his wife? No, I would criticize him for beating his wife in the first place. Well, obviously. But he would say, well, at least you've stopped. Well, what if yeah, you... that's true. But like when, whenever people say, oh, you know, gover- it's government, whenever you hear these, you know, lo- status go- loons say, oh, you know, government ended slavery, government entered segregation, I'm like, you mean Jim Crow laws? You mean... Um, well, they ended those mean- too. You mean, okay, but they created them. They're called Jim Crow laws. Yes, they did. did. No, but it's sort of to say thank you, government, for uh, ending what you started. But I was addressing Ben's original point, which was when when have actions by the citizenry caused a change in government where they put an end to a program that ended up being a good end of a program that they that they started. So and, so let me um, so let me answer that. Example. Let me answer that specifically with slavery. So uh all the European countries that ended slavery uh did so peaceably. The United States ended slavery by slaughtering massive amounts of its own population by burning and destroying the wealth of half the country. And then by instilling into the South a system that was so horrid and that was so wretched, and this is a system that was that was enforced with hooded men and whips and torches and nooses, and that system replaced slavery. And in addition to that, hold on, hold on. In addition to that, you are a slave today. Oh yes, yes, definitely. So slavery didn't end. Yeah, it didn't end in that regard, but. Um, we're not necessarily just talking about the United States government. We're just talking about governments in general, and there are several governments that uh, put an end to their um, support of the chattel slavery type institutions that existed in their in their uh, systems. Um, and and governments step in the right direction, isn't it? And governments did that. It wasn't individual people saying this is wrong and we're not going to do this anymore. And it wasn't, for instance, specifically. Specifically in Europe, at a time when the Catholic Church accepted slavery and the Quakers were literally the only major Christian organization that rejected slavery. And the Quakers were beaten, tortured, stripped naked, marched around town naked, burned at the stake, and killed in other ways. And eventually, Christians within the Catholic Church began saying, you know what, these crazy Quakers have a point. And then other religions in Europe started catching on, Lutherans and others. And if you want to accredit an organization for ending slavery in Europe, the governments would be the last ones responding to those demands. Now, if I'm holding a gun to somebody's head and he does what I tell him, then I can't possibly say that that the that the person with the gun to his head did that voluntarily, or did that out of the out of the willness out of the willingness of his heart? Well, in Europe, there was literally a gun to the head of the of the governments. The churches were stronger than the governments in that sense, and the governments knew that if they didn't stop slavery, 
that they would be replaced. And governments were being replaced very rapidly in that time frame in, in Europe. So the governments responded to the gun to their head. And, and we right. can do that. We as individuals in movements can place right now pretty much the gun is at our head from the government with taxes and things like this, the NSA yeah. and other things. But we have the power as human beings to turn the gun around and put the gun to the government's head, and we can actually end if, the if, government. If there's if there's a large enough group, you know, uh, uh, the three of us can't do it. We're outnumbered. But um, yes, if there's enough, if there is enough people who are willing to not let themselves be victimized. But all that's I'm saying is the movement first. But all I'm saying is that the precedent has happened, and uh, perhaps the movement has to get large enough to to occur. But um, if it starts with an end the Fed type movement, that's at least a step in the right direction. Um, but I, well, I, look, I, 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 I got your so. point. It, it's just. Well, um, but I, I think the problem is, look, I like one. I remember when they were doing bills audit, uh, audit the Fed, and one of the things that I was thinking is. This is going to be very, very bad, possibly, if the Fed gets audited. Because if the Fed doesn't get audited, everyone knows now that the Fed is trying to hide something. But if it's audited, and it's audited in the government way where it's not really audited, and it's just, you know, phony, well, everyone's going to think, oh, see, it's audited. We're auditing it, and, and, and we don't see anything bad. At least by not having this law passed, they're, they're saying, well, why don't they want it to pass it? They, have something to, they must have something to hide. So in many ways, it's good that these audit the Fed bills fail. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, Ben, um, one of our uh, viewers on uh, the YouTube uh, channel, um, certainly anyone who's watching uh, the live broadcast uh, is welcome to comment. Um, I'm looking at the comments and making sure that I bring them to the table. Um, the Southern Style 357 asks uh, or says, um, you know, the real problem is just about all, all governments are incorporated. Um, what about corporation rights? So you said that uh, governments don't have a right to property. Um, well, do corporations have rights to property? Corporations exist uh, because the government says they exist. The very first corporation. So say businesses. Well, we have two very different things here. Businesses and, gov- and, and corporations are two very different things. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me, before we get to that, and, and if, I, if I drift too far, uh, remind me again. Hold on one second. I apologize. I'm actually fighting pneumonia right now, so my breath is uh, not the strongest. But um, let me just jump back really quick to the Fed thing, and then remind me of that question, and I'll and I'll get to it. Um, a really good point was made there. Uh, you know, in the early '80s, there was a really strong movement to get back to the gold standard. We saw very dramatically what happened when Nixon closed the gold window. Ten years of destructive. Fed policy destroyed the economy, and there was this outcry to get back to the gold standard. And Ronald Reagan was elected, among other lies that he promised. Uh, he hinted in that direction that he was going to do that. And bef- before he actually got elected, the previous president, President Carter, uh, actually started the ball rolling in getting a gold uh, uh, council together to look at this question. And then when Reagan came in, he energized that, and he actually put Ron Paul on the committee. And part of the responsibility of the committee was to go into Fort Knox and audit the gold because a large quantity of people at the time believed that there was either no gold in Fort Knox or very little. 
So they put together this kangaroo court, and they went down there, and Ron Paul went with them, and they looked in one closet at Fort Knox, and they looked at one gold bar, and they passed it around, and that was the audit. Now, like the other gentleman was saying, if they audit the Fed, that will be their audit. And now it took years before anybody started saying, I'm not sure there's gold in Fort Knox. Now the German government is saying, you know what? I'm not sure the U.S. has all that gold. And the French are saying the same thing. And the Belgians, Belgians, and a lot of other people. Because I don't believe there is any gold in Fort Knox, or at least not the quantity they say. But it took years that that was whitewashed. So if the government audits the Fed, or if the Fed audits the Fed, which is actually the way it would go, um, (laughs) I mean, you know, in the words of the uh, former... Uh, one of the former big shots of the Fed, uh, I can't remember his name, he ran for president in uh, in uh, 2012. Anyway, um, he like he said, they audit the Fed all the time. The Fed audits the Fed all the time. Why wouldn't we need to audit it anymore? Well, you know, it would be the same thing if Congress audited them. Um, so, okay, now, so to the other question, uh, what was the other question from YouTube? Um, do businesses have the right to own property? Oh, okay, sure, sure. Businesses. <clears throat> okay, uh, again, let's yeah. distinguish between business and corporations. Corporations are a function, uh, and a, and a, uh, an arm of the, of the, what I call the state, uh, the government, corporations, the mass media, the education process. All of these are functions of the state. On the other hand, business is a voluntary, uh, union of individuals who uh, seek a similar goal, making money. And they voluntarily involve themselves in uh, cooperation in order to achieve that goal. And so that is entirely within the zero aggression principle and Lockean values and, and so forth. Um, so a company where it's a voluntary association of people is very much like a marriage. A marriage is a voluntary association of people. And so can, in a marriage situation, can you have, uh, can you own property in union, in common, in a marriage? Well, most people would say, yeah, you can. Uh, my wife and I own a lot of things together. Typically, though, with each individual item, really it boils down to one or the other of us owning it. So with a company, if you have it divided up by stockholders or whatever, Typically, it will boil down to a few people who actually have ownership. And some of them will have more of an ownership than the other. There's always an ultimate decision maker. And so ultimately, you have uh, an ultimate owner of property in a normal company. Now, with a corporation, you strip out of lot of, a, lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the responsibility because with, uh, with true property ownership, you also have to be responsible for that property. You have to be responsible for what happens to it and what happens as a result of your actions. So if you if you have a proper, uh, let's say, a libertarian company, then if that company were to pollute a river or pollute the air, then it would be it would be held responsible for that in a proper, you know, in what the the freedom fiends call libpair, a lib paradise. A company would be held responsible for its actions, whereas a corporation is not. So a corporation like GE, excuse me, 
uh, a corporation like GE can massively pollute the Hudson River um, and the, and not be responsible to the extent that they have done the damage. And, you know, the government sweeps in, taxes everybody else, pays for the cleanup, and we all go about, about our business. That's how corporations work. But in LibPair, each individual company would be responsible for its own actions, and each individual company would therefore rightfully own property. So a company can own property as long as it is voluntary, it is following libertarian principles, and so forth like that. If it's hiding behind uh, government terminology by calling itself a corporation, then it has abandoned property. If it exists, if that corporation exists due to government welfare, uh, government monopolies, government assistance, uh, government bailouts, then it doesn't exist as a legitimate company. It exists only as an arm of the government. And everything it claims to own is uh, rightfully up for grabs. Okay, so um, one of the questions that uh, being the end of the year I wanted to ask you was um, what do you consider to be um, your greatest uh, contribution during the year 2013 as well as other um, contributions from other people in the liberty movement um, during the year of 2013. I'm trying to catch my breath from from pneumonia again. I'm sorry. No problem. Um, that's a wow. That's a kind of a. I could spend a couple hours on that one because that gives <laughs> <laughs> that gives me the opportunity to start talking about the accomplishments of other people. So we could talk about Cody Wilson. We could talk about. You know, the explosion of Bitcoin and the guys responsible for that, the folks responsible for that, I should say. Um, you know, wow, Jeffrey Tucker, the things that he's accomplished this year has been amazing. Uh, for me, what did I accomplish this year? Well, hmm, other than getting the pneumonia. Just the one biggest thing. Um, I would say probably, probably my... Uh, my series on civil disobedience that I did this year, uh, I think last year I focused on a series on uh, on wars and on whether or not the police, the existence of police was legitimate. And I think that was probably my best accomplishments of 2012. Um, but for 2013, I think probably the best work I did was in that series on... Uh, um, going beyond civil disobedience, because I think that's really the next step that we have to go to. We have to take this beyond, you know, I, I talked about there are organizations like Anonymous and uh, and a lot of people like that who are willing to do things that are outside of the zero aggression principle. And there are ways that we can support them and support their activities with, without breaking the zero aggression principle. Um, let them take the risk. Let them follow their own levels of morality and let them, you know, the Quakers did this back, back in the years, uh, prior to the so-called Civil War. The, the Quakers fighting, uh, fighting, uh, slavery would, uh, you know, they didn't openly support people like John Brown, who, who believed it was, uh, perfectly okay to kill slave owners. They didn't openly support people like that, but they supported the general movement. And they brought 
to the conversation uh, support that gave a lot of other groups legitimacy that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And as the Quakers did that, they accomplished their ultimate goal in getting rid of slavery. Uh, they didn't do it the way they wanted to, of course, but, excuse me. Wow, I'm running out of breath here. <laughs> but uh, but I think, and that was what I was f- trying to focus on in that series and going beyond civil disobedience is that there there are so many organizations that we can support and win converts from them, uh, converts to peace and converts to voluntarism. And, uh, you know, and even taking things, speaking of, I mentioned Nelson Mandela earlier, and one of the things, and I don't know how true this is, there's some dispute about this, but one of the things that he supposedly uh, pushed was um, violence against the infrastructure of the government without uh, without violence against the individuals in government. And I think that's really important. I think if we, among us, begin the discussion of how can that be done while following the zero aggression principle, I think... And I think it kind of has to be done, and I said this in the series, it has to be done somewhat in the way that the IRA and Sinn Féin did this. And the way they did that was they had one branch that was horribly violent, ruthless, killers, and they had another branch that was peaceful. And the two had no official association. And yet they were moving towards the same goal, using each other's accomplishments in doing that. And I'm not sure exactly how to flesh that out, but I believe that the that that we need something like that. And if I've moved the the discussion in that direction in 2013, then I feel like I've done something. Well, as far as the uh, the 2013. Um the technolo- technological advancements that have occurred um, during this year, um, the the uh, Bitcoin is a huge step towards liberty. I think um, also uh, 3D printers um, be- becoming so uh, prolific and uh, cheaply accessible is also a huge step towards it. Um, what do you think about uh, the th- the 3D printing world? Is that going to make a significant change as time goes forward? I believe it really is. Uh, Cody Wilson is currently working on a on a um, Bitcoin wallet that's a vast improvement to the current one. But even his work with uh, uh, with the 3D printers, it opens up such such a wide variety of things for us that, uh, um, you know, the mind can't even grasp it all. There's so much. Um, we're talking about ending the Fed. Well, uh, Bitcoin can do that. Uh, Congress yeah. can't, but Bitcoin can. And uh, as far as uh, ending the uh, any restrictions on um, gun ownership, well, given uh, sufficient advancement in technology, the 3D printer world can certainly put an end to that. Um, there's really no way for them to pro- prohibit people from being able to download a template. Um, it's just not doable. Um, as far as uh, you, you said, uh, Jeffrey Tucker has done uh, some some great work. Um, what what uh, of his particular actions has been the the most productive in in recent times? Um, if I can get through this with without losing my breath, um, his work with Liberty.me is amazing. He's building a virtual city over there, 
and uh, it's really worth checking out. I haven't uh, got to talk to him. Excuse me. Hold on. I'm sorry. I may have to cut this short. Get to a vaporizer. <laughs> but uh, I haven't talked to him in a few weeks, and that's on my list of things to do as soon as I can talk <laughs> and breathe at the same time. But but uh, I'm following at a distance what he's doing over there, and he's really setting up something that has the potential of being huge. Well, I definitely think that that uh, the Liberty Dot Me, um, he's uh, he's really pushing for um, interconnectivity and um, a lot of uh, ability for people to um, collaborate and come up with some great uh, tools to to really advance the cause of liberty. Um, as far as uh, your um, your future in 2014, um, what sort of goals do you see? Um, you know, you and your efforts trying to accomplish. Hmm. Well, I hate to be morbid, but if I can live through pneumonia, then, <laughs> then I might um, I might uh, look further into the future. Uh, but at this point, that seems to be a pretty strong goal for me. Um. Stephen Charlton asks, um, Anonymous put out a video on YouTube calling for their people to pick up weapons and become violently and basically take and give their lives to fight against police. Um, As a movement, uh, what do you think about that, Ben? Um, Again, when when you choose to do warfare... uh, on the ter- on the enemy's terms, on the enemy's battlefield, using the weapons that the enemy has perfected, uh, you you are basically inviting disaster. Uh, this was this was the flaw with Adam Kokesh's plan. Uh, rather than hold on, rather than finding the weakness of the enemy uh, to charge into the depths of the enemy's strength, uh, brandishing weapons and asking the enemy to do something about you uh, will pretty much take you out of the race. The only really way to do this is to find the, the chinks in the armor of the enemy, find the weaknesses, the things that the enemy can't fight, like Bitcoin, mm-hmm. and use those things. Or 3D printers. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, I'm going to have to get to a to a vaporizer. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and uh, call things short there. Um, certainly, do appreciate you joining us, Ben. Um, I uh, I've uh, enjoyed many of the things that uh, you've you've uh, provided us in the past, and uh, we look forward to uh, you know works that you're going to provide in the future. Um, again, if people aren't familiar with your site, it's badquaker.com. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, we encourage uh, everyone to uh, take a stop by, take a look, and see what you're working on at uh, badquaker.com. Uh, again, um, do thank you very much for um, for joining us, uh, Ben Stone. Uh, thank you again. Take it easy. Thanks for having me. Good night, good night, you're folks. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. 
And, folks, that was my talk with the folks over at Voluntary Virtues. And you can uh, follow the links over at badquaker.com, and you'll see the actual uh, YouTube video of that will be linked at badquaker.com. And you can go over to Voluntary Virtues' uh, um, uh, YouTube website and check them all out as well. And, folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much.